0: Miss the show? No problem. On point and on the podcast. Search and rescue operations are still underway in Miami on day six. They still believe there may be survivors in that rubble. We'll talk to somebody who's done this kind of search, and some of the challenges and haunting things that they have to go through. How many people died of COVID or because COVID cut off their surgeries or their opportunity to get diagnosed? New data says thousands. We'll talk about that.
1: Please allow me to introduce myself. I'm a man of wealth and taste. I've been around for a long, long year. So many a man. So faith.
0: This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Our country is not perfect. But I'm inspired by our commitment to do better. Our commitment to reconciliation. In one of my communities on Canada Day, we had a First Nations chief who would speak about reconciliation. If events don't take place, you can't celebrate and you cannot rededicate your efforts for this country. It's time to build our country up, to to address reconciliation, to address inequalities not by cancelling celebrations or, or tearing Canada down, but recommitting to the, to the principles at the core of this country. If you don't want to celebrate Canada Day, don't. That's one of the great things about Canada. We don't have to do things we don't want to do. I got my um, email for Second Shot today. Kind of surprised me. I was notified that, uh, come on in, July 1st. I was like, what? July 1st? I don't want to go July 1st. I ended up getting really sick on my first shot, really sick. I took the AstraZeneca. And so I thought, is that really how I want to spend my Canada Day? In the fetal position? So I had no desire to be really sick, if, if that is what happens. So I called them up and said, can I do this on Friday instead? And they were actually pretty good about it. But it looks like you have to call your pharmacy so if you want the same shot, uh, and you're not looking to switch and mix things up, which I am not looking to do, uh, make sure you call the pharmacy where you got your shot, because they just assume, I think, that AstraZeneca people want the mRNA. That's what they assumed for me. And I said, no, 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 I'm not mixing it up. And they said, oh, okay, we'll, we'll put you on this list. A lot of people don't want the shot. And so they've bumped a lot of people up. So you might get uh, in earlier. But yes, scheduled for Friday. Say a little prayer now. Yikes. Well, lot of talk about what this Canada Day, though, should look like. Some, uh, of course, as you know, want it cancelled in light of the findings of these unmarked graves at the residential schools. Others say it should be a somber uh, reflection of the losses. And others probably won't pay any attention at all to anything, and they'll say, hell, it's a day off, I'm getting drunk. And the great thing about Canada, and there are many great things about this country, is that we can choose to celebrate any which way we like. So why can't we do both? Can we not celebrate what makes us great while observing and reflecting on the flaws? Yes, we can. I did it last weekend. We were uh celebrating my mother my mother, my brother-in-law's birthday. And so we had all this music playing, the kids were out having fun and and there I sat with a group, pretty large group where we ended up discussing these Horrific findings. And, you know, we talked about what it says about Canada, you know, questioning who we are. It was a pretty somber conversation. And yet it was being had while others around us were having fun. You know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. And most of this group is South African because that's my extended family. And they came to this country because they saw Canada as compassionate, kind, fair, fair, And also as not corrupt, albeit their opinions on that have changed, aghast at what they're seeing in Ottawa. But they came here because they thought this is a pretty compassionate, kind country. And so they were shocked. And I think, you know, they raised some questions, you know, are we as compassionate as we claim? And the point I made that was, while imperfect, what makes us so unique is that we won't allow this crime to go unpunished. That we will right this wrong. We will admit our wrong. We will learn from mistakes and correct the history. Unlike countries like China, who are unapologetic about any of their human rights violations. Other countries that just are okay with this. We are not. Other countries will justify it. And we only had this conversation because we were together together. And it was a celebration. And so I think a lot of people in this Canada Day, whether you're hoisting a beer, you're playing in the pool, whatever you're doing, will find yourselves probably having some of the same kinds of chats during what is a day to celebrate and chill out and kind of have fun. So for me, I say Canada Day should be what you decide to make it. So if you want to flip burgers, do that. And if you want to sit and reflect, do that. And if you want to celebrate what makes us a great country, I say have fun. But I think we can do all of that, or we can do none of that, and I think that should be okay too. But why then is it even an issue? Well, it's an issue because we've made it one, right? Because it gets political. And Aaron O'Toole was asked by a reporter last week if Canada should be canceled. He was asked this question before the second burial ground was even discovered he said you know no and he argues you know we should be celebrating our achievements while admitting our imperfections and we shouldn't be in such a rush to cancel what offends us and now of course he's getting in all sorts of trouble because he politicized the issue well no context matters he initially was asked a question before this second terrible finding but he was also asked he's a politician he was asked a political question and he gave his his views And for the record, it appears recent polling on this very issue is in line with O'Toole's feelings. We talked about it on the show last night. Leger polling finds just 14% want Canada Day cancelled. The other finding that I thought was quite uh, interesting is that 70% mainly non-Caucasian people say, we should be waving our flag way more than we do. So I thought that was telling. We're not perfect, but we should be pretty darn proud. Hell, I wish there were the same kind of media outrage over Jagmeet Singh's inflammatory comments that he made just a couple of weeks ago when he declared that Canada is a racist country where Muslims are killed every day. He made that statement twice in one day, once in the House, again at the funeral of that murdered Muslim family in London. And no one accused Singh of politicking, you know, on the backs of that murdered family. So, look, I find I find the outrage is a bit selective, And the way I see this, reconciliation is not going to happen based on what we do or do not do on Canada Day. It's going to happen based on if the government of the day ever puts its words into action, you know, delivering their promise of getting clean drinking water to First Nations, people who have begged for clean water for decades. What is the holdup? This has been a promise from every politician for decades, but this in particular was something Trudeau ran on. He was going to have no boil water advisories in his first term. They have barely made a dent. So that is more important than how you're going to celebrate Canada Day. Maybe holding a royal commission. Make that announcement. We'll have a royal commission. We will hold those to account, be it in the church, be it the politicians, it to those who are alive today. Anyone who took part in these crimes will be called to explain themselves. Get rid of the Indian Act. Allow indigenous people to self-govern. Stop fighting lawsuits launched by residential survivors. Rewrite the history books so that we have the whole truth, even the ugly parts. And so that, that to me is more important than what we do on Canada Day. Sure, put up your orange shirt. But, you know, tear down a statue, I guess. Cancel the day or the event. That, to me, is the easiest thing you can do. But it won't solve anything. So put your words into action. And by that I mean the politicians who talk way too much and they never actually walk their talk. That's what reconciliation will look like. And it'll take a good long time before we get there.
1: The human being is a is an amazing uh, an amazing creature and can survive uh, a very long time um, in in extreme situations. Uh, in the right in the right void, um, there could be survivors.
0: So that is a member of uh, one of the search and rescue teams in Miami, and we're now into day six since that building collapsed in on itself, killing 11 and trapping as many as 150 who still have not been found. And they're still calling it a search and rescue operation. There is still some hope that someone can be found alive, but what a horror show for these families going through this. And what a nightmare these rescue teams are up against. Uh, These searches are not easy, and they're not predictable. And you might recall back in June of 2012... When a rooftop parking deck collapsed into the upper level of an Elliott Lake Mall onto a food court and some small stores, there were two people killed and 20 others injured when that happened. And in that collapse, something called HUSAR, the Heavy Urban Search and Rescue Unit, responded and it was almost as soon as they started rescue efforts, the unstable structure would make their operation even more dangerous because, of course, they had to deal with the instability while trying to find people and get them out alive. John Davison is Divisional Chief of Technical Operations at Toronto Fire, also a team coordinator with HUSAR. And, John, you were also up at Elliott Lake when that building collapsed in on itself. Good to have you.
2: You're right. Thank you.
0: When you arrive on a scene like that, um, you know you're you're kind of facing all these unknowns. Um, and, and Elliott Lake, what happened there, is much smaller than they're dealing with my, in Miami. But what goes through your head as a as a person who's running into to the unknown? What's that like?
1: Um, first of all, it's uh, the unknown of of why did this building collapse? I mean, it's just a, not a normal occurrence. Uh, generally in North America, um, but first of all, it's uh, we start doing size up, obviously, of you know how big of a situation this is, time of day, um, what the type of building it is. So as so compared to mall, and Miami it was obviously a residential um, structure. Uh, time of day, so it was happened, I believe, at uh, 2 a.m. in the morning, approximately. So obviously, people would be home in their beds sleeping, compared to say people leaving for work at 8 o'clock in the morning. So your your I guess your capacity would be less than say nighttime. Um, mm. And then there's obviously hazards you have to take into consider. You know, um, your natural gases, your electrical supply um and then obviously hazards within the building depending on what the building makeup is it is an industrial factory compared to a residential compared to a mall um and then it's like okay is there signs of life so you kind of have to quickly bundle this together and come up with with a plan of how you're going to approach the building first of all
0: yeah i mean it's it's like <laughs> It's a lot of moving parts, um, and time is not your friend because the more time it takes, the less chance you have of pulling someone else out alive. And I'm sure you've been watching from afar some of the pictures and visuals coming in. I mean, this building essentially pancaked onto itself. They've got the cadaver dogs going in to smell what it can smell, of, you know, signs of life. Um, you know, if anyone did survive one of these things, they they, they can live, but for how long?
1: <clears throat> so, um uh, there's a lot of variables when it comes to that. Um, obviously, uh, how much physical space that they have, um, what their physical condition was previous to the event, um, what injuries they have incurred during the event, um, have you know access to clear, uh, water would be probably the number one priority. Uh, they've had substantial rain down there during the event, so there is a possibility that people have been able to capture water. Uh, mm-hmm. the food side of things i mean people have lasted uh one of the fire chiefs had mentioned that in haiti they were at day eight and found someone alive uh so there's a there's a multitude of of um factors that that have influence on survivability so th- that's factors that would be they would be taking into consideration right from day one of the event um, mm-hmm. so yeah it, it's it's Like I I say, it's just so many variables that you kind of take it by event to the next
0: event. Yeah, I mean, you rush in while others are rushing out. And, you know, in 9-11, it was so chaotic because, you know, fire guys and police are rushing in and going up the stairs trying to get people out. In this situation, uh, floors have compacted onto themselves. So it's not like you can really rush in. Kind of the same in Elliott Lake where you've got this deck that falls onto a, a mall. Uh, those those don't just move out of the way for you guys to go in and rescue. And so does it become a matter of of getting your equipment in to chip away where you think you might find somebody using sonar equipment? I mean, how long does it generally take before you guys can spot where a body or a person might be? And then, of course, how long you know can it take to, to get them out?
1: So um, we have quite a... Um, a large cache of equipment that we have access to. Um, currently, Toronto Task Force Three uh, has uh, what we call Delsar, which is a, a de- listening device. They're are a series of uh, microphones that are placed in a strategic area, um, and then they respond to any noise. Uh, it's not specific to human or 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 say physical um, material, but if we do get something that is of interest we can start doing triangulation and bring the microphones in closer and closer that's one technique that we would use Um, another method is using cameras we have an extensive camera system that is uh, reach poles or can be lowered down on cables we would compromise the concrete with a hole and then we would lower that camera system in to get an actual visual it'll also give us a prelude to building construction and what time of what type of collapse we're dealing with um another handy uh um access uh, or sorry detection equipment is our canine unit currently we yeah. have four dogs assigned to the team uh they are are tended by uh toronto police services canine unit uh so we use dogs extensively now there is two types of dogs there is a live person dog and then there's obviously a cadaver dog um we only have live person dogs so these dogs are specifically trained to locate live people um Mm -hmm. and they and when they indicate that that kind of narrows things down for us as well
0: what's it like when your job is to save people's lives and you're now in day five or six you know and time is starting to build up you know elements of weather uh, heat food deprivation those kinds of things uh adrenaline starting to wear off of, of those who are buried but like at what point do the teams know that they are really up against uh, all odds on finding anybody alive? And what at what point does the search and rescue then turn into a, a recovery operation? And, ha- and how do those two change as far as, as, you know, how they're carried out? So
1: that is something that at a command level is monitored quite closely. So um, you obviously have to take in the you know what the work environment is for your your rescuer um they are working in a very hot humid environment uh, obviously it's not the best weather with rain involved um, you're exactly right the adrenaline uh, starts to kind of subside um you get exhaustion settling in um you know, you have to watch uh, crew rotation. Is, is it a twenty work minute work cycle? Is it a two hour work mm. cycle? Or can you push them any further? Um, starting to find um, deceased persons in the pile, it, it kind of plays a negative factor on the uh, the you know the morale of the yeah. team, et cetera, et cetera. So they're at that point now where they have to start considering the the the. Um, physical and mental uh, capacity of their team members
0: i have to think that that's going to be a pretty tough call to make um at the top because you know you move from an operation where you're really delicately picking your way through a scene to deciding okay uh we've got to bring in the heavy equipment uh, kind of acknowledging that no one's going to be found alive and that's a totally different operation Um, that's going to be pretty tough
1: it, it is and and where do you draw the line like yeah. like do you give it two more days with a possible uh, successful uh you know rescue or is it beyond the point where everything that you have uh access to with the dogs with the cameras with the microphones with the you know the environment you know the temperatures mm-hmm. Um, the actual building construction, the type of collapse, it all starts weighing in now. I believe uh, they're at day six. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. So that plays an influence on it. Uh, so that that's a tough call. Um, I mean, ethically, uh, you have to look at it as well. I mean, where do you where do you draw that line? And that that's a very tough decision. Um, at the first, you know you're in rescue mode. There's no question you're going in because the the, the Chances of survivability are, are greater, as they often refer to, the golden hour. Um, mm. But as this drags on, this this is now, this is where the decision-making is going to be very difficult.
0: Yeah, and no question. I mean, uh, like 9-11, uh, some bodies never were recovered. They simply evaporated. Um, in Elliott Lake, you did recover two bodies. But there are, is a very good possibility, I would have to think in this situation, that some families will never know what happened to their loved ones
1: and that's true but again not being privy to information or being actually on site and witnessing um, what they're seeing that that i can't really speculate on what these uh well i've heard on the media that they've had to do dna sampling in that the, mm-hmm. the the person they've they've located is is unrecognizable or didn't have id on them which a majority of the people it goes back to you're seeing size up. A majority of these yeah. people would be in their beds, so they wouldn't have wallets on them or any form of identification. So it just increases the task that Florida has on their hands moving on into the investigation.
0: Well, you guys don't get called in very often, but when you do, it's certainly um, for the most serious of serious. So I appreciate the insight and um, and what that's like in, in the decision-making process. I, I appreciate your um, your perspective from that. So thanks for joining us.
1: Great. Thank you.
0: John Davison is a part of HUSAR, a heavy urban search and rescue unit, and also with Toronto Fire, but uh, certainly they're a specially trained operation, and uh, when they get called in, it's for the toughest of jobs. So let's hope for some miracles, but be, I guess, mindful that time is now running out. You know, with the chaos of COVID now settling in, we're starting to get a tally of uh, what the experts like to call the, quote, collateral damage. I find that to be just such a trite and callous way to to describe what is really the losers of this pandemic, because what we're talking about are those who didn't die of COVID, but whose health needs were certainly put on the back burner and either went completely or ignored, or their needed surgeries were cancelled. And a study is now out done by a think tank, secondstreet.org, which gathered data through freedom of information requests from provincial governments across this country that reveals as many as, if not more, 10,000 Canadians died waiting for surgeries, misdiagnostic scans, or cancelled appointments with specialists. Colin Craig is president of secondstreet.org. He joins us now. Good to have you.
2: Thanks for having me, Alex.
0: So you call this study, quote, died on a waiting list. And you not only looked into the number of those who died, but that those who would have been in a a category of preventable death. And we've certainly had doctors on the show who have warned about these shadow pandemics after this thing, you know, the tsunami of cancer deaths because of misdiagnosis, heart disease. Um, And so here we're starting to get the data. But I expect that those numbers, these numbers could change.
2: I think they will. Um, it's a very difficult thing to research because governments do a very poor job in Canada when it comes to tracking patient suffering in the healthcare system. So even with this report that we've got, uh, it doesn't include any data from Quebec, Newfoundland, New Brunswick, uh, the Winnipeg Regional Health Authority. There's, there's a lot of holes in it. So we know that the figures in our report are lowballed. And, uh, you know, just to be clear to your listeners, we're not saying that all these people died because their surgery was postponed. There certainly are some cases where that happened, where people didn't get their heart surgery in time or other procedures that could have potentially saved their lives. But there's also a lot of people that suffered because they they spent their final years in pain waiting for their hip surgery, or they had cloudy vision because they waited for their cataract surgery. So there's a lot of sad stories out there um, we're just trying to gather more data and information on uh, what exactly is going on in Canada when it comes to uh, our chronic waiting lists and, and patient suffering.
0: Yeah, and anyone who's had chronic pain certainly knows uh, it can lead to some, you know, really bad stuff like self-medicating, self-medic- and often it can can lead to things like drug addiction just to ease the pain. But when you, you know. When you talk about COVID deaths, I mean, there have been conversations whether or not someone actually died of COVID or something else and just got listed as a COVID death. Do you know, is it too early to get that kind of data or or, or will we start to see that?
2: I don't know if we'll ever see that. Um, I don't know that governments want to go in and actually do those audits to make sure that all the COVID deaths actually counted as as COVID deaths. There was one case in, in Alberta where there's a Uh, A younger man, I think he's in his early 40s, and he didn't get his pacemaker surgery done in time, and he passed Mm -hmm. away. And uh, his, uh, his, I think it was his ex-wife, who he was still close with, was asked if they wanted it counted as a COVID death. And it had nothing to do with COVID. It had to do with his heart and and heart surgery. But we've heard these stories anecdotally about non-COVID deaths being potentially counted as COVID death. I don't know how widespread it is. I, I don't know that we'll ever actually get that number.
0: Yeah, I, I suspect you're right. And I mean, there have been lots of people asking those questions. And it's uh, somewhat sad that in the aftermath of this, we won't get that kind of, um, you know, accuracy. Uh, because when you look at the numbers you've got from 2019 to 2020, it shows that 2,367 died waiting for the surgeries. 6,200 died because they just didn't get, get diagnosed. and I'm starting to hear a number of stories um, from people who uh, their their loved one died very suddenly because they had cancer it was diagnosed way too late and now they can't get helped or someone who should have had their heart looked at when you know it was they were suffering pain and then they dropped dead of a heart attack so we are starting to hear those anecdotal stories and so you know because of covid and because everyone's it's such still a chaotic time I'm not sure we'll ever get an accurate reporting of um, of this so called collateral damage,
2: I think I think you're right. I'm glad you mentioned that because that is something that we talk about in our report that is uh, is not included in this data. Are cases where, uh, you know, for example, a patient receives their cancer treatment or maybe it's some kind of a heart sur- surgery or something else. They do get it, but because they had to wait so long, it got to a point where it just wasn't effective. And and those are certainly casualties because of our, our healthcare system that, that need to be accounted for as well. Like you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot of people that are they're not even getting to the point where they're on the surgical wait list because they can't get their MRI in time or their CT scan yeah. in time or, or whatever it is. So there's a lot of patient suffering that's happening. I think what's, what's important for your listeners to keep in mind, too, is that this is not new because of COVID. It's gotten worse because of COVID, according to the data that we can see. But this, we put out a report last year that looked at data before COVID. There, there's suffering that is happening in this health care system that's been going on for decades. Uh, there's been a lot of good ideas that have been put forward for a long time now on how we can improve things. I think the problem is that we have not seen our elected class pursue meaningful health reform to mm-hmm. ultimately improve the services that Canadians get. And, and that is the problem so often yeah. in Canada, our healthcare debate turns down or comes down to our system or the U.S., and that's a, a very foolish debate to have because there's so many other countries in the world that have universal healthcare systems. They're providing better results in Canada. We should be looking at those countries, whether we're talking about Europe or mm-hmm. uh, Australia, New Zealand. There's a lot of uh, a lot of good healthcare models that we could really learn from and improve uh, results for patients, so that we can reduce suffering.
0: You know, in, in November, um, you know, uh, according to, to reports that came out just a couple of a uh, few weeks ago, in November, um, in Ontario alone, we will have a backlog of surgeries by about half a million uh, people. That that is an, an enormous number. There was already a waiting list before, as you well know, and as you kind of cite and point to. I mean, people I think I think if you're just waiting for a hip replacement could wait anywhere from a year to two and a half years. So, we already knew that there was a wait list, but a half a million people to get that cleared up is going to take it's not manageable. And yet, as you say, no politician wants to lead on this. We're going into a federal election that uh, everyone knows about. But there's no one who's actually brave enough to have the conversation about what the actual solution is, which is to give Canadians more of an option. Um, but again, once we're we're in the hole this deep, I just don't see us ever getting out unless we actually do bring in some of these solutions.
2: You're, you're right. A, a thousand percent right. If, if we don't, with reform, there's going to be more patient suffering. Absolutely. And it's one thing to think about this concept of patient suffering, but imagine when it, when it hits home, when it's yourself who's spending a year stuck in your apartment because you're living with chronic pain and walking across yeah. the room is just too difficult. Or maybe it's your a parent, a loved one, or whatever. I mean, that's ultimately what these numbers boil down to, are people that are having a very difficult time. Uh, and then as we've talked about, in some cases, dying. And unless we proceed with reform, it's, it's likely going to get quite a bit worse. Uh, you know, you talked about one solution, which is giving patients choice between using the public health care system or going outside of it. That's largely not allowed in Canada, even though countries which perform better than Canada, like I talked about, Australia and New Zealand, many countries in Europe, they give patients that choice. And what it does is it takes pressure off of the public health care system. And there's always this fear-mongering that happens in Canada when we talk about this. But if you think about the public education system, you know, you don't see these, these, uh, these boogeymen coming to life, right? You have a public education system across the country. Parents can choose to send their kids to that, or they can choose a private school. And the sky has not fallen with the public education system. It wouldn't fall if we gave patients more choice when it comes to health care between the public system or going to a non-government uh, uh, healthcare care provider. That, that's one option. Really, one of the first things I think governments need to do to address is, is track the data and disclose yeah. more information on it. Um, in Ontario, uh, they, they track the data centrally. They can tell us how many patients uh, died while waiting for surgery, but they wouldn't give us any of the data in terms of, well, how many of those were cases where uh, people were waiting for surgeries which could have saved their lives or maybe... Right. That- information on uh, how many waited longer than the recommended time frame that kind of information
0: yeah I, and i don't get the sense that they'd be in too much of a rush to get that information out because it doesn't look very good on the government just before i let you go call in that you say you believe that these numbers are underreported i too believe that they're underreported and, and since you're missing a whole bunch of provinces when will you have more data um to kind of give us a better reflection of what this so-called collateral damage
2: well, I, I would expect we'll be releasing another report on this uh, by the end of the year. Uh, in cases where we, you know, provinces just don't collect the data, we won't be able to get that, because there's none, none to, to obtain and disclose. But uh, yeah. if your listeners, one of you, any of the data that we've received from government, we've posted all of the government responses on our website so they can uh, view it for themselves.
0: Yeah, scary picture. All right, thanks so much. I appreciate you joining us and giving us a bit more perspective on this.
1: Thanks a lot, Alec.
0: That is Colin Craig, and it is secondstreet.org. We'll keep an eye on that one, because we always knew that there would be a, a lot of people who suffered without COVID because of COVID, and now we're starting to get that picture. Thanks for listening. Of course, you can join us live Monday through Friday, starting 6.30 sharp here on Point. I'm Alex Pearson. This is Global News Radio.